Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, I'm excited. We're taking a little bit of a detour and we're going to do a meet the team. This will be the first one of these where we just highlight the brains, uh, go go under the behind the hood a little bit and see, learn more about the people bringing you this great financial planning knowledge. So today we're going to be interviewing Justin to learn more about him how he got here, why Brownlee Wealth Management, and just you know who he is as a person. So I'm looking forward to to giving him some questions. You know, with all of the uh, podcast topics that we tackle, I like to think that I'm you know somewhat of an expert on them. This topic, I'm very confident. I am one of the world's foremost experts on this topic. Uh, so either me or my wife, I'm, I'm guessing one of us is is the uh, top expert in the, in the world here. Absolutely. And, you know, as we were preparing for this podcast, of course, we found a find a way to financial, add some financial jargon to it. And we said our podcast was a little overweight, super technical topics and a little underweight, you know, more personality, lighter stories. So, so we're just trying to bring some balance because, you know, if you listen to the podcast for a while, you know, we're all things diversification, including podcast content. That's right. That's right. So with that, Justin, I think a good place to start is despite how it appears on the podcast, because our listeners probably know that you're a big fan of the great state of Texas. You're not actually a native Texan, right? Uh, And for the vast majority of your life, you actually grew up in the Midwest in Kansas. Tell us a little bit about what it was like being a kid growing up in Kansas. You know, it's funny getting that question today. Um, So when, by the time this airs, Texas is probably going to have some pretty great warm weather. Uh, But today was a very cold day and um, I was in charge of picking up our kids from school. uh, And it was uh, by the, by the mid middle or end of the day, it was like 37 degrees. Uh, So it was really cold this morning, but by midday, 37 degrees. So I asked the kids, were you able to play outside today uh, for recess? And JD and Blair both said, well, no, we're not allowed to go to recess outside unless it's 40 degrees or warmer, which I just thought was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Uh, Growing up in Kansas, I think our barrier was either zero or 10. Um, And so cold weather was, you know, early and often it was, it was all the time from November through, through March. And so Kind of funny to to get that. That's the first thing I think about when you ask that question, what was growing up in Kansas like? Uh, a lot of recesses. I was explaining to my kids that, you know, you might even take, if, if there was snow in the forecast, you might take snow pants to school with your coat because recess would be playing in the snow. Um, and so just a, just a very different uh, scenario there, very different setup than uh, the recess that my kids are experiencing. Trying to think what else. Now, when you hear Kansas, Kansas is is really two different worlds. Um, and so I'm sure you can imagine this if you're not from Kansas, but there's Kansas City, which is, you know, a relatively large metropolitan area. And then there is uh, the rest of the state is extremely agriculturally oriented, uh, a lot of farmland. 
and stuff like that. I grew up in Kansas City. And so a lot of my family does have uh, farming roots and both generations uh, or both uh, sides of my family, my mom and my dad for for generations have been in Kansas. Um, so definitely have a lot of that kind of agricultural farm background. Uh, but my upbringing, mostly Kansas City. Great. So what was that? What was that like growing up in you know, growing up as a kid, what was your family culture like, you know, coming from a long line of agricultural Kansas farmers? What what, what was life like in the Brownlee household? Let's see. So I'm one of four kids. Uh, I have two older sisters and I have a younger brother. Um, I am the only one, interestingly enough, who uh, has not returned to Kansas City. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that I I, I truly love Texas, um, and I don't. I don't just say that because um, a lot of our clients are here. Um, I don't, you know, don't really say that at all for that terms. Uh, I just, I genuinely love Texas. It, it, it is an incredible place to live, uh, and I am quite a convert. But with that being said, culture growing up, being one of four kids was really fun. Uh, all of us are about two years apart, so it, I just, I loved being part of a big family. We were kind of an interesting family. So my dad uh, started his own business in mortgage uh, lending, so home loans. And my mom was a politician. Uh, So that's kind of the unique thing about us, if you will. Uh, My mom grew up, or when I grew up, I was in third grade when my mom had her first election. So she ran for the state Senate in Kansas, representing the Kansas side, uh, Johnson County. And she won that election and then won three or four more times. So she spent almost two decades in the Kansas State Senate and then also a a short stint as the Secretary of Labor. And so I think that's probably kind of the unique thing about us. My mom was an elected official and she spent three months out of the year living in Topeka. And so my dad, I think think that probably has to be mentioned. My dad is uh, an, an, an incredible person. And so he is, he is a very, uh, just amazing dad, amazing husband. And, you know, with my mom being in Topeka three months out of the year and my mom is truly amazing as well. It's not just my dad. I'm a, I'm a big fan of my mom as well, but yeah, it, it really was interesting to have four kids and to have that dynamic where, you know, my mom would be in Topeka. She would drive back. That's about an hour and a half away from Kansas city. Uh, so she would drive back multiple times a week to see us play games, basketball or, or whatever sport we were playing at the time. And so a lot of that going on. And uh, uh, let's see, I think another interesting thing about our family, we are huge Kansas State fans. Uh, so I went to Kansas State. I uh, have had maybe 50 living relatives with degrees from Kansas State as well. Now, when I say fans, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, will say that they're a fan of a certain team and that means they might watch the game every week. We had season tickets, so we went to every game. But we also went to the away games. Um, so we we were very, very big fans. And that is one of my best memories as a child. Uh, so my brother and I went on so many road trips with my dad uh, to go watch college football games. And I think that really shaped uh, both my brother and I. And that's, that's a big reason why we're close. Um, it, it, was a, it, it really built the culture uh, of our family. And it, and it continues to this day. I love that. Yeah. One of the, the words that I heard or just the ideas is commitment, right? Commitment to the team, commitment to one another, commitment to doing meaningful work, even if that means you have a longer commute or commi- commitment to picking up the slack, you know, because 
mom's away working. Um, that's really, really a great example. How do you feel like that's, you know, kind of how you've grown up has kind of shaped who you are uh, and how you conduct yourself today? You know, I think on one hand, um, I have three kids and my wife and I have, uh, you know, we get asked when you have more than one or two kids, you get asked, well, are you done? Are you going to keep going? And we've definitely, we're definitely interested in, in having more if, if that's the Lord's will. And so I think that's the first thing. I was a part of a big family and I think that really shaped the way that, that my wife and I kind of view that. I will say that's, that's maybe an interesting opinion that I have that I think a lot of people in my generation do not have, uh, in not just having a lot of children. The specific thing that I want to point out there is I actually think you should press the issue and have kids earlier than you think. So I do not think you should have all your ducks in a row. I do not think you should have a certain amount of money saved. I don't think you need to have this perfect life in order to start having kids. In fact, I would go way on the opposite direction. And I would just say, you know, you and your spouse, if you want children, make it happen. Just dive in, just do it. What else was your question though? I, 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 can't, I couldn't remember the initial question. No, basically just how does that, how does that impact you today? Kind of the culture that you had. So it sounds like you kind of want to continue the sense of, Hey, camaraderie, you know, I'm sure with four kids and you know, the work dynamic and all the travel, there was just, you know, it was a bit of a juggling act and it sounds like you've adopted a bit of a juggling act and you're kind of embracing it a little bit. But yeah, the question was, how does that impact you today? Okay. The other, other thing I wanted to mention, uh, Jared, do you remember which podcast was our uh, college planning podcast where I discussed uh, my wife, Lauren, going back to law school. Was that maybe six or seven or something? Um, I don't know, but we'll link it in the show notes. Awesome. So I do think having my mom, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom and then got into politics and you know was a, a player in that world for, for decades. So that has, has definitely shaped some of the things that, that our family has now done. So my wife was a stay-at-home mom and my oldest son was is not too far from how old I was when, when my mom ran for state office. So having Lauren take that path and do that, you know, a lot of people think we're a little bit crazy for, you know, adding something else to the juggling act and, uh, you know, having all the, these irons in the fire it seems totally normal to me. So the idea that Lauren would go to law school and, and pursue something in her 30s after having been a stay-at-home mom for several years with a lot of kids, uh -huh. the idea that she would go do something like that just seems totally normal to me. And I realize that probably seems a little bit odd to others. That variable by itself seems odd, but you know, you're, we're also in the middle of starting a business too. So it's just one yeah. other kind of component and ingredient and you, you know, so th things are still kind of up in the air from this perspective, but getting, getting more normal, but yeah, you, you handle it well. I've had many zoom calls with the whole gang kind of giving their feedback and it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, but you know, it's fun and yeah, they're great. Absolutely. So Next question. This is a podcast about money, right? And financial planning and wealth and kind of all the things that go into that. What was your first memory of money? Or maybe it doesn't necessarily have to be your first one, but like from growing up, like what me like memories do you have that are kind of burned in your brain about money? 
My first memory of money is probably my dad talking to us about the idea of stewardship. Both my parents um, very much prioritized their faith and uh, the Bible was a central part of our life growing up. Um, so my dad would actually work with us on a weekly basis on memorizing verses. Uh, so we would spend time memorizing Bible verses and some of the some of the very first ones had to do with with being a good steward of everything God had entrusted you with. And so I remember just the idea anytime I, I thought about money as a kid, it was always linked to that idea of responsibility, stewardship. And if you've been given something, are you uh, are you being a good steward of what you've been given? So the, those two have always kind of linked um, in my mind. And how would you how would you define stewardship? I think you know I, I just want to give you the first answer that comes to my mind. Um, I think stewardship is with what you have been given. Are you maximizing it, or are you doing what you're supposed to do with it? Now, maximizing I, I don't love that word because that just means well you have to always grind and produce more and more and more and more and more excess excess excess. So maybe maximize is not the right word. Maybe it's just doing what you should do with what you've been given. Uh, and so making sound decisions, being a responsible manager um, of whatever it is you've been given uh, in life, whether it's material wealth or relationships or or any amount of responsibility. I, I love that. Like the, like the net, like increasing the net benefit of something, right? Because like you're right, maximizing does kind of, you know, does doesn't feel great, right? Because it's a net negative in terms of quality of life or how hard you're working. Like in this holistic sense, what is the net benefit of what I'm doing and how it's impacting myself and the world around me? That's great. Yeah, I mean, how many um, how many times do we meet with a, a client and we even say bluntly that you know we very much consider how do we make good financial decisions to increase your net worth, but retirement at its core is is in a literal sense, it's a decision to lower your net worth. It is a decision that is a bad financial decision, but a maximizing of life decision. And so weighing those two things is, is kind of at the heart of financial planning. So good. So did you, like you had the stewardship imprinted on you early on. Did you always want to be a financial planner? Probably not in light of your past. What did, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, you know, I think my first, uh, memory, I was really into, uh, being an architect, which were on, on Netflix. We've, uh, we've been watching Seinfeld, which I mean, I am just decades behind here. I'm watching Seinfeld for the first time. So I bring that up because, uh, uh, just the constant joke of, uh, George wanting to, is it, is it George that always jokes about wanting to be an architect? Um, but uh, yeah, that was my first dream. I remember drawing ho- house plans, drawing football stadium plans. So I wanted to be an architect. Wow, interesting. I I didn't know that. See, we're all, we're all learning something here together. That's great. So I would love for you, and I know a little bit about this, but I would love for you to kind of talk about like you're a career changer, and the the careers you've had over the course of your life have all been pretty different. So I would love to kind of learn you know, your career history and how you got from wanting to be a kid as an architect to where you are today. So my first job out of college, 
I was working with a campus ministry and essentially the, the, the gist of it was I was leading Bible studies in fraternities and stuff. And so spent a few years in campus ministry and that's where I met my wife, Lauren. So I went to Kansas State, uh, but I went and I worked for the campus ministry at the University of Arkansas. So moved to Fayetteville and um, I met both Jared, you and my wife, Lauren in Fayetteville, uh, along with a lot of other great folks. And so after our time in Fayetteville, that's when we transitioned uh, into financial planning through an interesting set of circumstances. We just were excited about kind of that field. And it, it was a really vague excitement though. Um, so when I started in the, in the world of, of financial planning, you know, I think I mentioned this on one of the other, one of our very first podcasts, there weren't many jobs at fee only firms. Almost every job in financial planning was sales oriented. And so I was working with an insurance company and gosh, this is in the Washington, Washington DC area in Maryland. And so my wife, Lauren, and I moved out there, uh, spent a few years there. We uh, had our first son, uh, JD. And at that point, you know, we're living in Maryland. My family's in Kansas City. My wife's family is in the Dallas area. And uh, you have your first kid and it, it, it's kind of a punch in the face. And so we wanted to get closer to family. And that's eventually what led us um, to Houston. So the exact job I wanted with the company uh, that I wanted to work for just ended up being in the woodlands. We had never lived there, didn't have a whole lot of background there, uh, just serendipitously worked out. And we ended up moving to the woodlands. And uh, that is, that's really where all the dominoes fell into place to, to get us where we are today. Yeah, but there's a couple big dominoes that also happened, like from a life perspective, right? Like you also had cancer, right? At a very young age. And so I'd love for our listeners to kind of hear more about that and kind of how that fit into your journey of kind of finding your, your dream job and then connecting that to maybe Brownlee Wealth Management, if those two things are connected. Absolutely. So this is quite a story and let's just cut to the chase. So my wife, Lauren and I, um, we had JD in Maryland. That's our first child. Then in the woodlands, we had our daughter Blair just 18, 19 months after JD. And then we were pregnant with our uh, she, my wife was pregnant with Peter, our uh, most recent uh, son. So after giving birth to Peter, this is uh, two weeks after my wife, Lauren, has, has given birth. I had a checkup from I had what was thought to be a cyst in the back of my neck. Um, so I, I just had a small procedure to get it removed. And one of those things where I had had it checked out multiple times and Multiple doctors had said, everything looks great, should be good to go. The operation went well. The surgeon said, yeah, it looks great. Everything should be fine. And then in the checkup, got the news that, well, the report came back and um, there is, there's, there's something you know, problematic there and uh, you have cancer. And so you know, I, I'll never forget the moment walking back into the house and uh, telling Lauren, you know, she was two weeks after giving birth to Peter her third C-section. Um, so, I mean, she can barely, you know, she's just, you know, up and walking around again for the first time. And I sat her down and I told her, we just found this out. I, I have cancer. And it's a really interesting deal because 
essentially the only information that I had from the uh, surgeon who who got the report back was that it is a really fast growing lymphoma, a type cancer. And so that's all the news we had. And essentially we had to wait another four or five days for more news to come. And so sitting on that is just an interesting time uh, because you really don't know what kind of report am I going to get back? All we were told, the only words we were told was this is a very fast growing multiplying type cancer. So, you know, you really didn't know. I remember on the drive home before I told Lauren, just thinking this is going to be one of the biggest moments of Lauren's life when I tell her this. And Peter's two weeks old and we don't necessarily know am I going to get a diagnosis that I may not be around for, for most of Peter's life? And so, you know, it, it certainly was interesting because I, the way that I would describe it is that month, it's a terrible time and it's something that you really don't wish on anyone. But it's also interesting because as I look back on it now, it's one of the richest times of my life. And so, you know, five days later, we did get a, a much, much more clear diagnosis and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is something where essentially you look at the sample and you can dice it up and figure out exactly where you fall and what's going on and what the treatment plan should be. Now, the treatment plan, fortunately, is is great and the diagnosis and, and stuff was good, uh, but the treatment's also very difficult. And so surgery, chemo, radiation... There's just a lot that that goes into it. And so, you know, it's the, like I mentioned, you don't, you don't wish it on anyone, but it truly was one of the richest times of my life. I kind of just imagine that heaven is, is a really neat place because if you've spent time in different places, uh, you get to see all those friends again and you get to, to be around people you love. That's, that's kind of what I envision it. And during that first month of having cancer, uh, you know, my wife, made an announcement on her Instagram page. And so for the next month, I just remember hearing from all these friends that I had back in Kansas, friends from Kansas State, college friends from Arkansas, from Maryland, and then now living in Texas and in the community we had in the Woodlands was truly unbelievable just coming alongside us and, and helping us in by far our darkest hour. But, but that's why I say it was such a rich time because that's really unique. There's no reason if you've lived in several different places, there's no reason for all of your friends in all of those places to reach out to you and connect with you for, for no reason at all at the same time. But I just remember really cherishing that and thinking this is, this is special and, and it's, it's not normal to be able to you know experience that in a week's time. But it's also kind of a rich time because you just feel everything so much more. I remember feeling the weight of, of, of kind of what we were fighting for. Uh, and I think JD was the only one of our kids who was old enough at this time to even have somewhat of an understanding. He could, you know, cognitively put together words and phrases that, that made us, you know, sense that he does know what's going on. Blair was probably too young. She just knew that I was sick and that every morning I loved it when she would come down and give me a big hug. That's about all she knew. And then Peter was two weeks old. So I think the last thing to share though, is just what my wife went through during that time is, is pretty remarkable. Peter is by far our, was by far our worst sleeper 
as a baby. So anyone who's had kids can, you know, testify to this, that you can recall trying to sleep train your children. And for some of them, my goodness, they get to be one month, six weeks old. And for some reason, it's just pretty easy. But Peter was not that way. Um, He did not sleep through the night for his first six months. And so during that six months, my wife found out that, that I had cancer and that I would need some pretty serious chemo and radiation and surgery. And during that time, during my second chemo round, I also had a pulmonary embolism. And so long story short, that's a blood clot that essentially goes through your heart and stuff. And so that uh, really complicated things. So my wife has a two-week-old baby. Um, She's taking care of me. I'm starting chemo. Um, Then I have a pulmonary embolism. And so multiple times during that, during that window, I remember she drove us to the emergency room one time. And uh, I mean, we just had Peter in the car with us. It was an absolutely crazy time where she really just was an unbelievable support system. And just our family is in a very good position today because of, because of, of her strength. So yeah, there's a lot that uh, goes into that. And you know, whenever you have cancer, you're kind of uh, in this club and, and there's there's kind of a club of, of people who are cancer survivors and there's just something about it that that, that, that bonds you. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly made a huge impact on where we've been, where we are now and, and where we're going. And that's also a big reason why Brownlee Wealth Management exists. Yeah. Talk, talk a little more about that. I love that word you use rich, right? It was just, I was so captivated by you talking about that because it's such just such a heavy thing to endure, but it just sounds like it was so formative and just kind of clarifying. And like, you know, after all of this, I feel like I would just be so, you know, done with crazy life events where like I wanted to work a basic nine to five and make life as simple as possible in light of this big thing that had been endured. But you come out of this really heavy thing. And on the other side, you start your own financial planning firm. And then a few years later, Lauren, you know, picks up something she'd always dreamed of doing, but kind of set aside. So talk a little bit about, you know, coming out on the other end of that, how you, how Brownlee Wealth Management came to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's just a lot of things that I had always wanted to um, start my own firm and were, was looking at different avenues and just thinking, you know, what's the best way to do this? And uh, getting cancer halted that, you know, just stone cold. And, and for a long time, I thought that, well, it's probably best if I stay with a larger company forever. Uh, after this has has happened. Insurance companies don't really want to give you life or disability insurance uh, when you have that type of event. And so big companies are a pretty good deal because they have group coverage. And so for a long time, I mean, I thought that I, I mean, we were going to be in the situation we were in for a very, very long time with the company that I was at uh, for that reason. And yeah, I think God just opened up some incredible doors but I also think it was just interesting how the position that I was in with my prior firm, it just so happened that every case, every family that, that came across my table, it, it was a situation where they were retiring from a large oil and gas company. I mean, I would say 80%. And the brokerage firm I was at didn't have a niche or specialization. I just happened to be a lead advisor at an office in North Houston. And so just by product of that... Uh, kind of fell into this where 
hey, almost everyone I'm talking to has the exact same estate planning problems that they need to think through. They have the exact same exact same tax planning issues to consider. So many of them have NUA, which is pretty rare, pretty unique, not a part of the benefit package of most companies today. I mean, it has big tax implications. And so I kept seeing this in whether it was Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, Schlumberger, any large oil and gas company, there were maybe five or six things that were all the exact same in this prior role. After having cancer, it did, it, I mean, it did plant a seed that, that just said, hey, you're alive and, and that's amazing. And so if we want to do something, let's go do it. And so I remember when my wife and I planned this out, when Lauren and I really were planning this out, the question that we asked was, well, what's the worst case scenario? Uh, which is interesting because, I mean, I think, Jared, you can agree. I think we ask every client. We cover that literal question with every client we work with in multiple scenarios. So the worst case scenario for us was that, hey, this doesn't work at all. It fails. And what does that mean? And so for most people, it's this giant, horrible, scary thing. When they think about starting a business, they think about leaving their current job, they think, well, this is a disaster. I mean, I'm going to lose all my money. Uh, The sun's going to stop coming up tomorrow. Just horrible, horrible things are going to happen. But we asked that question, what's the worst thing that could happen? And the answer was, you know, significantly better than what we had already been through. (laughs) I mean, we had already been through a very difficult period. And so asking that question really made us think, hey, we, we can do this. And if it doesn't work, I'm a CFP with a lot of experience and there's, there's going to be other jobs. There's going to be other opportunities. And so a lot of doors that, that the Lord just opened and some incredible things uh, that just came to fruition. And long story short, that's really kind of the crux of it, that at the end of the day, we started to think, hey, what if we do something really specific? And we just say, we're going to address these problems that everyone retiring from a large oil and gas company has. We're going to get hyper-specific. And I've kind of just backed into this this background where I knew a lot about those things. And um, we just decided, hey, it's if the worst case scenario happens, it's going to be a lot better than the year we had a, a few years back. Um, and so we that, that really helped us take the plunge. So why was taking the risk worth it, right? Because it sounded like, you know, just by proxy of being an advisor at an office in North Houston, you were already getting to help a lot of these families kind of cover these various topics. What what made it worthwhile to where you said, hey, I'm going to take a big financial risk and kind of hang my own shingle? Like, because you were, in a way, you were already doing the thing that you wanted to do. What? Why? Why start your own firm? I wrote an article on this, um, just some of the things that have happened in our industry and, and where our industry is going. And, and really, it's, it's all about decentralization and independence. Some of those key 30-second highlights, large nationwide brokerage firms that everyone has heard of, advisors, uh, especially wirehouses. I was not at a wirehouse, but wirehouses, advisors are leaving them in droves and they're starting their own firm. Some of the reasons for that are technology today exists that make that possible that 20 years ago, I mean, you needed several hundred thousand dollars just to open your doors. Just incredible advances in technology have made it to where it's so much easier to be independent today. But then the real reasons are, are conviction-based. 
and advisors are going independent because they want to be a fiduciary. They want to look at a client across the table and say, I don't have any other obligation. I'm not being paid a commission. My company does not get a kickback. All I have is I have you here and I'm going to tell you what's in your best interest and you're going to pay me for it. There's no, there's no giant annuity with a big commission. Uh, there's no sales campaign where you get a car if you sell the most insurance policies or something. There's none of that. So all of this behavior, and the Wall Street Journal has done so many articles on firms and are they are investment firms really acting in their clients' best interests or are they kind of you know enriching themselves through commissions and kickbacks that end up really costing their clients a ton of money? And so the reason why so many advisors go independent, and that's why I was in this exact same boat, I wanted to be a fee-only fiduciary. That decision is voluntary. It is entirely my decision, you and I's decision, whether Brownlee Wealth Management is going to sell products that have huge commissions or whether we're going to be fee-only and just ask the question, what's in our client's best interest and simply do that. You know, one other uh, quick detail there the huge movement to independence in our industry. It's also really marked by any nationwide large firm that you've probably seen Super Bowl commercials for. Uh, It's interesting. They do not let their advisors talk about taxes. And so if you have an advisor at giant firm X, uh, brokerage firm, and you go to them and you say, what's going to happen if I convert $40,000 in my Roth conversion, or if I take a $90,000 distribution, how much should I withhold? Uh, Should I make an estimated quarterly tax payment? And what's my capital gains effect going to be? Uh, There's going to have to be a disclaimer from that company that says, we don't give tax advice. And if you can't answer those simple tax questions, much less, you know, 20 other tax items that must be considered if you're retiring from a large oil and gas company, that's a problem. And so that is a big reason why I started Brownlee Wealth Management. And I think that's a huge reason why independence is gaining so much momentum, why so many advisors are leaving large nationwide brand name firms and starting their own thing. They want to be fiduciaries and they want to get way more specific with tax and estate planning and how that pertains to their portfolio. Yeah, so good. You want to do like the work you want to do for who you want to do it for in the way you want to do it without the conflicts. That was the other thing, you know, that you didn't mention that I'll just add quickly is, you know, I think you had what, 300 clients at, uh, at your old firm. So like there was really a minimal amount of, you know, proactive, like meaningful relationships that could be built just because, you know, that's, that's a lot. That's a great point. Yeah. That's probably the third point that has to be discussed. Uh, I think I had about 300 and the plan had I stayed was to have five or 600. And I think we've discussed this before, but you know, we don't want to have more than uh, 50 clients per CFP. And so Uh, If we want to do things like review your estate plan, if we want to uh, navigate capital gains tax opportunities six years from now and how that affects your IRMA Medicare premiums and how that affects your Roth conversions and really just detail. There's, I think we'd like to say there's probably dozens of, of little things that affect your taxes that also pertain to how we manage client portfolios and navigate retirement income. All of those things, there's I like to say there's 50 or 60 little details that go with financial planning. And if you're working with 500 clients, you just don't have the bandwidth. 
to be in depth with with all of those little items and instead you're you're really just trying to trying to you know herd an enormous amount of of people and it's it's a difficult task and a lot of things are just not able to be focused on at at that scale so sounds like you know cancer as tough as it was was you know it was clarifying right and it gave you the courage and just the you know the understanding of things aren't as scary as we make them out to be so you kind of came out with professional clarity of hey i'm going to hang my own shingle what's the worst that can happen i have conviction about these ideas what would you say like as a family what did you learn as as a group or like what how is that reframed like how you build a family and the goals you have and the things you want to accomplish together you know one of your first questions was first memory of money I think the way my view of money has evolved is uh, money is a tool to buy relationships. And so when I think, uh, and, and the reason I bring this up here is when I think about even my own personal finances, I really do want to use my money to make sure that I'm taking my kids out to eat. I want them to be adults and I want them to remember times that we had around the table um, at restaurants, building memories, doing experiences together. I think we went to, gosh, how many, for, for living, uh, not in, my wife went to Arkansas, I went to Kansas State. For us living in a separate state from both of those, I think we went to like four college football games this fall. And so those are things I want to do. That, that's an investment where we are, we are doing something that costs money, but guess what? My, my kids are going to remember that. And so, you know, I think, I think that's the big takeaway that, there's just not a lot of, of, of certainty. And, and, even, and even if you do get X amount of years in this perfect window of raising your children, you know, let's say that you do get this perfect home life where you get to raise your children. Even if you get that, that is really, really short. I cannot believe that, that my oldest is, is turning eight here in a couple of months, few months. And so I think the biggest thing we took away was that we've got to start living now. Actually, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of go back to this topic. I'll be as brief as possible. This is the biggest takeaway um, that I had from the entire cancer diagnosis and all of that. The, I think I mentioned there's like a five day, maybe it's a week. It felt like five years, the window between we got the news that, that I have cancer, but there was going to be another week of a lot more tests that happened before we figured out what exactly do I have and what's the whole prognosis and stuff. During that five-day window, you don't realize how much of your daily happiness is tied to the idea that I'm probably going to be alive in three months or three years. You don't realize just how much happiness is tied to that to that thought that most likely I'm going to be here in three months. Statistically, I'm probably going to be alive. When that starts to get tested, it really shakes you um, and says, boy, it's it's really hard to be happy <laughs> um, knowing that. And so how do I take that to just the culture I want to build with my family? Even if you get this perfect experience of raising kids for, for 18 years, that's a really short amount of time. And I, I want to use time and I want to use money uh, first and foremost, to build love into my my marriage, into my relationship with each of my children. Yeah, I want to take those resources and I want to invest them so that they wake up in 10 years and 20 years and think a lot of the things that I think about my parents today. I and mean, I'm just so thankful that that they made sacrifice after sacrifice 
to spend a lot of time with us, um, even though we had that kind of unique living situation. And, you know, they spent a lot of money on, on doing fun things with us as a family. Yeah. And right. That's how you do. That's how you should deploy capital, right? It's not to optimize financial return. That is a component, right? Like these are really big. I like how you use the word investments because they are in fact investments you're making relational investments, right? You're making deposits and those compounding are worth, you know, worth more than any, any amount in your bank account. So I love, I love that. That's such a good principle. One of my favorite passages. Uh, it's a story of, of Jesus and he's interacting with this. Uh, he's telling a parable and the parable is kind of a shady parable. So it's really interesting and it's not clear at all, but it, it's fascinating because the parable is about a manager. So there's this rich, you know, someone, someone has a lot of assets, a lot of money, and there's a manager that works for that really wealthy person and he's getting fired. And so in the process of this, of this person losing his job, he essentially goes to his uh, uh, boss's clients. He goes to his boss's clients and he essentially gives them a deal and says, hey, you owe my master X number of dollars. Just pay half of that now. We'll wipe it clean. And what's interesting is, is Jesus tells this parable and essentially says that what this kind of shrewd manager did was an incredible thing. Because he basically built relationships all over the town and the region for himself after he lost his job. And the purpose of that parable at the end, Jesus essentially says that, hey, money is a, is a temporary thing and you need to take the temporary resource that is money and you need to buy things that last forever with it. And so kind of a unique parable that doesn't even get a whole lot of attention, but uh, it's always been one of my favorites. So. To, to kind of wrap up, Justin, I, I came up with this question. I'd love to hear kind of what you think, but what's one idea, principle, or, or quote, or really anything that's really speaking to you right now, and how are you hoping that it impacts your life? I think that I want to go with, uh, so one idea, one quote. I think this is going to be kind of a mixture of atomic habits. Uh, James Clear wrote that book a couple of years ago. I think it's been number one for almost two years. But something along those lines is kind of a combination of focus and, and just what are our daily habits looking like in business, in our family? Um, so, so every spectrum of life, what direction are we going toward? And so one of the ideas that I love from from that book is just, Making a one percent uh, increase, making a one percent, uh, you know, better decision in whatever area you're looking at, uh, is a really, really small decision on a day or on a weekly basis. But when you extrapolate that, you're going to wake up in five years and just be in a completely different position. And so, kind of a a principle of the path, or just with our family, with 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 our business, with with everything in life trying to really be committed to just putting in a good day. And also, you know, I think it's so important to do that just because it's, it's really easy to live life always looking forward to some future state. And I think, you know, from the story that we've already shared and discussed, I, I think you can imagine that that's something my wife and I have talked a lot about and, and, and we don't want to do that. Uh, because we realize just how short our time, uh, you know, together and with our children is uh, that that we want to be really focused on where we are, you know, personally uh, in our marriage. We want to be content uh, with where we're at. We want to 
understand the idea of enough. We don't always need more, more, more. But a big reason why we want to be content is just so that we can we can really be present uh, with our kids and, and enjoy each stage uh, that that we're going through. And so I kind of shared a lot of ideas and and stuff, and it was vague. But that's my off the cuff answer. That is a really good question, though. No, good one one percent improvement, right? And things rarely, you know, directionally it it's like compounding, right? It just takes takes way longer than you ever wanted to, but. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and, and being brave enough to, to hang out your shingle. I'm really excited about, uh, what we're building and I'm glad our listeners got a chance to, to get to know you and the firm a little more. Absolutely. Looking forward to interviewing you next. There we go. Awesome. Well, we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.